Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My guest today is a woman I'm pretty sure you've heard of, but you may not think you have. Her name is Paula Hawkins, but you probably know her as the author of the global bestseller, The Girl on the Train, a book she wrote in her early 40s after, I'm sure she won't mind me saying, an awful lot of also-rans. The Girl on the Train went on to sell 23 million copies, be published in 50 countries, and is one of the top five selling hardbacks since records began. It was also turned into a film starring Emily Blunt. But I was also suddenly in demand and I had to travel all the time and I was not a public figure, but people recognised my name and I was being asked for interviews all the time. So it was a, a very steep learning curve, I think, in a lot of ways. But does that level of success, and let's face it, cash, bring with it massively liberating freedom or the fear of never being able to live up to your own legend? Paula talks about the shock and salvation of sudden midlife success when you're totally broke, the importance of being able to leave if you need to, the likability curse that plagues women, why she always knew she didn't want children, and her hopes for her third novel, Taut, Tense, A Slow Fire Burning, which I have to say has some of the best older female characters I've read in quite some time. I am not in my box room. (laughs) I am in Paula Hawkins' kitchen, and this is the first time for a year that I've done this interview face to face. So I'm honoured. I was going to say you're honoured, but you're not honoured. <laughs> I am. Honored. I'm in your lovely kitchen in lovely Edinburgh, and the weather's not too bad, even. It's all right by Edinburgh standards, I guess. Yes, yeah. We had sun okay. yesterday. That's our lot. But um, so thank you for having me. Oh, it's lovely to have you In your kitchen, Paula. I'd like to start by talking about success in midlife because there's no point not talking about the girl on the train elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. And I've got your face. (laughs) Your face went, oh, we've got to talk about that thing. But we do a bit. Oh, of course, yeah. It's a big thing. I'm very grateful for it. It's been six years now since it was published. Six and a bit. Let's talk about life before that, really. So you were what... 43, 44 when you wrote? It was published 2015, so I was 43 when it was published. No, it was 42, I hadn't yet turned 43, but yes. So I was in my 40s, early 40s. And I had been a journalist for a while. I was a financial journalist at the Times and other places, but mostly the Times. And I also wrote about property for the Times. And then I wrote... Four sort of romance novels that I did under a pseudonym and those came about in a really weird way because the first one was commissioned. So a publisher approached me via my agent and said, we've got this idea and this is the character and could you write it? They wanted it done in six weeks, which is quite fast to write. Quite fast, yeah. But I dashed it off and it was quite fun. 
I'd always wanted to write fiction, but I had no confidence in myself as a fiction writer at all. I wrote stories that I never showed to anyone. I think I'd done like an online writing course that even that I found like really painful having to submit. This was a really good exercise in learning how to write fiction without me having to put my heart and soul on the page. So do you treat it just like journalism? A bit, yes. Particularly the first one, which was very much, this is the arc, this is the character, you know. The other three were more my idea, or at least came a bit more from me. The fourth one of those did really badly, that it didn't sell at all. And it was clear that this was not my forte. The stories kept getting darker and darker. More and more terrible things kept happening to all the characters in the books. And it was clear, really, that romantic comedy was not my game. And I mean this is the highest compliment, frankly, because it's not my game either. But you really don't seem like a rom-com girl as a reader or a writer. I'm not. It was a, an odd thing. It was a mismatch. That's not to dismiss rom-coms because I do enjoy rom-com. I just, I'm not personally either romantic or funny. So I would not be the right person <laughs> to do this. Yeah. The stories kept getting darker. After the fourth one just bombed, it was clear that we could not continue in the Spain. Yeah. And um, I talked a lot about writing thrillers with my agent. She was very keen for me to try one. But I was in a pretty bleak place when I started writing The Girl on the Train. I was not in a good place financially because, you know, if you spend two years writing a book and it sells a thousand copies, it's not good. You can't live on it. No, I had to borrow a bit of money to pay my mortgage. But I had this idea about this drunk woman, drunk girl, actually, as I called her at the time. And I tried to write her a, a different story and it hadn't really worked out. But my agent was very keen on this character she was like do drunk girl so eventually I came up with the train thing that she would see something from the train and I, I initially thought she'd witness an act of violence or something but which is something we all identified with yeah. at that point really when mobile phones hadn't quite taken over the world yeah. and sitting and staring out of a train window was a oh, yeah it was just, this is exactly it seems like the distant past now because obviously no one commutes anymore but yeah commuting staring out the window yeah it was pre that mobile phone thing I mean obviously people had mobile phones but you didn't read everything on your phones I don't think you got a signal everywhere it was the days where people still picked up metro oh god it sounds like the dark ages now so you pick up the metro realize there was nothing to read in it and then spend the rest of the time staring out the window and there are places that you know you can actually see quite a lot of detail Mm, you can see right especially in that bit as you go up to london from the south coast some of those houses just literally back onto the mainline route absolutely so yeah and then once rachel was on the train it was all traveling it worked and yeah the rest is history history. did it take you by surprise yes it did early on I think I'd written you know 30,000 words my first reader is always my agent she was like oh yes this is wonderful she loved it I could tell she was immediately much more excited by this than she had been by anything else (laughs) by Amy Silver (laughs) poor Amy Silver I know so that was great that was encouraging. But you know what it's like. There are often moments sadly. about a book where you're excited about something and it doesn't come to anything. I'd been excited about the book before, I think, at one point. But then I sold it on a partial manuscript because because I needed the money. I don't think that's an ideal way to sell a book. But I said to my agent, can yeah. you please go that's see some publishers? That's how I sell books if it's all possible. But. <laughs> and yeah, there was an, an immediate response again. So then this was a very different experience for me. There'd be more than one publisher interested. I knew that I was on to something, but obviously nobody predicted how big it was going to get. Nobody. I think it was Jojo Moyes described the moment that someone said to her, me before you has become one of those books. Mm. And Girl on the Train not only became one of those books, it almost became the book, didn't that mean? Isn't it top five selling hardback since records began or something? You're cringing I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't know that. Those figures are always a bit sort of uh, 
I remember when it was in paperback, that really odd experience of being on a plane and sort of four people in my row were reading it. <laughs> it was just yeah, which extraordinary. Like, in a way, it's like an author fantasy. But, but actually, I was just dying inside because you're just waiting for someone to like go exclaim and sort of chuck it away and say to their you know partner what a load of rubbish (laughs) (laughs) so what kind of immediate difference did it make to your life you know you're kind of mid-40s been broke Mm. been well yeah I I paid off my credit cards first thing I paid my dad back the money that I owed him it was this overwhelming sense of relief that okay, I'm not getting myself into trouble. I thought I was really getting myself into serious trouble. And then suddenly I wasn't. And that was an enormous relief. And then it's very odd to think about that time because when you're in the middle of it, it seems a bit unreal. And it was fun and exciting and terrifying. And I suddenly had to do a tour of the United States that was sort of planned almost on the hop because nobody anticipated it being such a big book because I was unknown. And they thought maybe I would tour in when it was out in paperback, not in hardback. So suddenly it was just a feeling of being flung into something, which was, you know, obviously exciting, but also, yes, as I say, terrifying was slightly vertiginous sort of feeling of like falling. But um, my life changed in the sense that I was suddenly not in trouble from that perspective but I was also suddenly in demand and I had to travel all the time and I was not a public figure but people recognized my name and I was being asked for interviews all the time so it was a a very steep learning curve I think in a lot of ways kind of a sense of other people have some call on you yes Yeah, you immediately start to think you need to be more guarded. And I used to be on Twitter and I found myself becoming blander and blander and blander (laughs) because you realise that people will notice what you say, whereas before nobody cared what I said. And not that I was, you know, in the habit of going out saying controversial things all the time. There was lots of reasons I left. But one of the reasons was I didn't feel sort of that I could say anything interesting anymore. (laughs) One doesn't really want to be the centre of things. Well, most people don't. I suppose you came you know, in the public eye. Your publicists might kill us for this. You have done quite a good job of it being the book that's famous, not you. Oh, definitely. Um, I think that's generally the case for writers anyway. There aren't that many writers, I think, who are sort of like recognisable. There are people like J.K. Rowling who's very visible, but that's mostly because of movies and other things, isn't it? Movies turn the dial in a way. Mind you, you had a movie. I did have a movie, but I wasn't really involved in the movie. So I did some press at the time that it came out. I didn't write it or anything. So all I did, I did a few interviews. And I did notice that the interviews were different and the, the interest in me was different. It's the only time I've ever had sort of tabloid interest in my personal life which haha there was like absolutely nothing for them to find out but they did turn up at the flat I used to live in and they turned up at my partner's daughter's house somehow I don't know how they found her but everyone just told them to go away it was fine it didn't matter but that's the only time where I felt that kind of brush with proper that level of intrusion celebrity yeah. yeah but it went away very quickly and I live a quiet life and I yeah I'm not glitzy or glamorous so it's quite easy to retreat from it if you if that's what you want to do I think yeah there's a sense isn't there by the time you're 40 or in your early 40s and all those of us who have been in our early 40s know how untrue it is but there's a sense that there are things you should have like a mortgage that's well on the somebody's in trouble (laughs) Um, a mortgage that's well on the way to being paid off you know as if a pension Mm. So you kind of went from not being very grown up in that kind of way to being, 
I don't know, just like otherworldly. I was talking to some friends about this last week because we were away on holiday and we're all childless, apart from my partner who has grown up children. But we were talking about the fact that it does kind of stunt you in permanent permanent adolescence. That you, you don't take on responsibilities necessarily if, if you don't have kids. So I do think I'm still like that. But yes, I went from slightly chaotic, not grown up to less chaotic, not grown up. Um, <laughs> and yeah, obviously having... Financial security is a lovely thing if you can have it. People say that, you know, money won't make you happy and it won't, but it takes away an awful lot of worry. It is crazy to say that it doesn't make you. I think it's mainly people with money who say say that. that. And it's ridiculous. And I can reassure you all that, yes, it's not going to make you like happy, happy, but it's also going to take away those nights where you lie there thinking, oh God, I'm in trouble now. What am I going to do? And I was a person with a safety net. So I cannot even imagine what it's like for people who don't have a safety net. Terrifying. Mm. Before we go, I promise I am going to ask you about slow fiber. <laughs> but you just, it's your own fault because you just mentioned not having children. Mm. So I'm going to leave ahead in my questions to ask oh, you about that. I don't have children either. And I totally hear what you say about that being slightly, stunted is a really good but quite offensive word. But I think yeah. we can use it because we are the stunted in this, yeah. <laughs> this scenario. I'm interested in, uh, your, and this does relate to all the characters actually in Slow Fire Burning and to Rachel um, in The Girl on the Train. I'm very interested in that kind of life lived slightly outside the narrative that society provides you. Do you think the reason that you write the characters you do is because you have slightly lived that life? And I don't mean like wildly outside, but Mm. just outside the narrow constraints. Yeah, I think there's no question that the fact that I write about women who don't necessarily conform to societal expectations is because I, as you said, I've never been married, didn't have kids, well, haven't always behaved the way society might demand. Obviously, the characters whom I'm writing about generally are more extreme in their shunning of societal expectations. But they're also, a lot of the time, people like Rachel, and there's a character in a slow fire burning called Carla who have tried to live the life they were supposed to. Mm. get married have kids and it hasn't worked for them or you know Rachel obviously couldn't have a child and it's what that does to you when you've tried and failed and the gap between what society expects of you and what you're actually doing you know the feeling that you haven't measured up neither you haven't measured up because you didn't want to measure up or that you've tried and failed I think there's a really interesting space there and women are as we all know judged quite differently there are different expectations for men. They don't revolve so much around family life and being dutiful and being nurturing and being good and being pleasing and likable and all those mm. things that we're constantly asked to be. Did you feel a pressure to have children? No, actually never. My parents, not that they didn't want me to, but they were never those like, oh, we want a grandchild kind of parents. And I just knew very young it was not for me. And so it's always been in every relationship I've had whoever I was with knew from the start that that was never going to be on the cards. Would that be on your Tinder profile? <laughs> if I had ever had a Tinder profile, that would be on my Tinder profile, yes. That ship has probably sailed, I would imagine. But yeah, it would have been. You say you knew very young. What was very young and how did you know? Some little children and maybe more little girls because probably because they're sort of socialised this way. Love babies that love, you know. <laughs> I never liked, I didn't, even, I didn't actually now. even like, dolls I wanted to be a vet when I was really little I was very into animals I definitely always found animals much cuter than children I just never felt that thing that women are supposed to feel I've never had that broodiness looked at under woman was a child and thought oh that's what I want I've never I've always been like oh thank god (laughs) it's not that I don't like children I do like other people's children very much but it's 
I've just never had that desire that you see in other people that is obviously so important in other people's lives. My mum always says she didn't want kids until she had them and then she loved them. And mm-hmm. so she always said to me, yes, I know you say you don't want them, but if you had them, you would be fine. But then you do kind of think, well, what if I wasn't fine now? What if actually I had kids and then I was terrible? That would be awful. But more than that, I just knew that it wasn't what I wanted. And I wanted to, to work. I wanted to have a career. I wanted to be independent. I wanted to not be beholden to other people. It makes me sound like a terrible selfish concept. No, it doesn't. I can feel like, who am I hurting? If it's always been out there, and I've always made it clear, you know, the only person I'm depriving is myself, really, if you see it as a deprivation, which I don't. In an odd sort of way, it's so liberating to be a person who knows early that you don't want it, because then you don't have to think about it again. You have people who sort of prevaricate and wander and can't make up their minds. And I know that that's a hard thing. That's a really tricky thing. Or people who are in their mid-30s and know that they want a child but aren't in the right relationship. Or people who are in a certain point of their career. You know, all of those things make it really difficult. I never had any of that. I never had to worry about it. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. I mean, I have read things about people who said that they thought they definitely didn't want kids. And then immediately it was too late. They suddenly regretted it. Well, if that happens, that happens. I kind of had that moment. It was when um, I'd had loads of gynecological problems. And the gynecologist was kind of in there with the ultrasound. And she was talking about hysterectomy. And she said, oh no there's no need you're almost all out of eggs oh right (laughs) and at that moment I did think oh shit yeah that's finite but yeah it passed but I was surprised to feel it at all I don't know we'll see when we get there but I can't imagine there being a desperate sadness for me because yeah I just can't imagine that you touched earlier on like likability and all mm. those things that women are supposed to be and our characters are supposed to be. And certainly when I started writing, there was a lot of pressure, wasn't there, to write Happy Ever After, to write the character that 
was likable, had some um, redeeming characteristics. And I'm not saying your characters don't have redeeming characteristics, because they do. But it's much more liberating now, I think, writing. Mm. Your female characters are allowed to be proper people. Yeah, and and yet I'm still surprised by how often people talk to me about how unlikable my characters are, even in this book. So by burning, people have said, oh, the characters are also unlikable. I'm like, no, they're not. (laughs) I like them. What I'm aiming for is a situation where you might meet a character and not like them. But then as you uncover why they are the way they are, the psychology behind it, the history behind it, you you have empathy for them. That to me is a big part of what fiction is about, is allowing us to empathise with people we wouldn't all sympathise with, people we wouldn't usually do. So I also find it quite odd. People say... Things like, oh, you know, all your characters have flaws. <laughs> Isn't that true of all people? And how many books do you read where characters are completely flawless? Or maybe they're sort of acceptable flaws, being a bit klutzy. And yes, they are flawed. They're deeply flawed, some of them. But that's where the interest lies, as far as I'm concerned. And particularly, you know, I am writing crime novels. It would be a bit dull if everyone was good. It's really interesting because, you know, there are good crime novels, there are bad crime novels. You know, male detectives who are flawed, who are alcoholics or recovering alcoholics, who are divorced, in the process of divorce. You know, those male detectives are ten a penny and some of them are good and some of them are bad. And nobody ever says we can't have another male flawed male detective (laughs) because X wrote one. Yeah. But the number of times... I speak to female writers who say that they've been told that the world doesn't need another flawed female detective yeah. because there was one on the telly a year ago last <laughs> Tuesday. I was reading a oh, it's an article, maybe a speech by Margaret Atwood, where she talked about this whole thing of likability is bizarre anyway, because when you're writing a novel, your characters are not sort of running for public office. They're not supposed to be role <laughs> models. They're not supposed to be people you're going to marry. You know, you're writing a, a scenario, a, a, you come up with a story. You're not supposed to aspire to be these people what you have to do is write a character that people are interested enough in that they want to follow them around that's the thing and lots of people despised Rachel and the girl on the train but they still found her intriguing enough that they would follow her about for 300 pages and that's what you want to do and that's what I hope I've created in this book I am really interested in origin stories I love origin stories for me the best bit of like any superhero film is the origin story that's the only bit I really like then it's all fighting that how people got to where they got to how they get to do the terrible things that they're doing all the good things or the extreme things that's the bit that I find fascinating the building from way back when and that's the whole point of a slow fire burning yeah isn't it tell tell me about the title because there's a lovely origin story behind (laughs) the title it refers to the process by which paper it has an acid within it that sort of makes it brittle so eats it from the inside so in some old books you'll find when the pages start to sort of flake away and they actually look almost like they've been burned you get that jaggedy yeah that's slow fire and so i think they might make paper differently now or treat it with something but old books eventually unless they're very very carefully looked after will just disintegrate so the slow fire is that thing that eats you from the inside the flaw within you that eats you from the inside and and that's um, trauma so that yeah all the characters most of the characters in this book have something within them and it doesn't have to be actually a flaw some of them you know it might be shame or guilt but it might also be love there's something that the seeds of their destruction lie within kind of thing. Probably true of most of us. We have something within us that could destroy us or we could vanquish yeah. it. So that's what the slow fire is. The book is also a bit about books. Mm. There's a book within a book in it. It's about writing and reading and all those sorts of things. And the morality of writing. There's well. that in it too. Obviously, the last six years of my life, as we've talked about, have very much been about 
writing and being published and reviewed and read. And so that has been on my mind. And so that comes into it, this book, is how we tell stories, who tells the stories, who gets to own the stories. Mm. Can you own an idea? You know, how we come up with our ideas and how we use them and all the morality of that too. I mean, who gets to tell the stories has become a really big thing, hasn't it? Lately, that kind of women being written out of history, white people writing history and controlling history. Is it something you consciously think about when you're writing about telling women's stories? One of the elements in A Slow Fire Burning that I really liked was the kind of balance between the powerful and the powerless. Mm. And that's in the location, but also in the characters and in the story arc about who gets the power and what happens when the powerless take the power. Mm. It's key to the plot, but I'm also thinking about those people who do feel powerless in society or who feel that they've had things taken away from them and who have had things taken away from them. And these might not be material things. It sometimes is a question of somebody taking, feeling like you've had your voice taken from you, that somebody else has taken your story or somebody else has taken your space. And I think these are issues that a lot of us are thinking about at the moment. I think there's been an attitude that everyone has has the right to tell any story. I don't want to say that you're not allowed to write about things, but I think you, you have to be thoughtful. You have to be careful. If you're telling the story of somebody from a community which is not your own or a culture that is not your own an experience that is not your own. You do have to be a little bit careful about it. Think about it. Think about what you're saying. Don't deal in stereotypes. Hopefully don't deal in cliche. Be respectful. But you've written actually a really wonderful female ensemble Thank you. book, I think. I have to say I've had some fun like doing fantasy casting. All right. This is one thing I always refuse to do. I actually don't think I see people physically that clearly when I'm writing about them I can kind of imagine how they are how they move maybe but not oh she looks like this you know I even forget what people's hair color is sometimes (laughs) (laughs) it's not the key thing I think it would be really fun to cast properly hopefully one day all of the parts are great Hmm. but I was really interested how they're all kind of midlife or old yeah they are. Was that intentional or just how it panned out? It's partly because the point they are at their lives, I needed them to be a bit older, but it was really nice writing about, it was really interesting to me to write about older women and to write about older women who still have sex lives and who still have ambitions and, you know, desires. I mean, there's a character, Irene, who's 80 and she's not finished yet. She's a dude. (laughs) She is still open and interested and she wants to travel and she wants to do things and she wants to make new friends and that kind of stuff. So it was really interesting to write. And I think, I wonder if one does tend to write characters, I'm not 80, but characters (laughs) more around your own age. (laughs) Well, I think you kind of created some good jobs there. For yeah, the, let's hope the so. Life actresses. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, the point of writing a book is that to get it into the hands of readers. And when I was talking to Kate Moss, she was basically saying, as far as she's concerned, the book isn't finished until it's in the hands of readers mm. and they kind of complete the process. But now you're writing, you know that people are going to read your books. Yeah. Is that liberating or intimidating? Now, I'm going to say it's intimidating, aren't I? Because now I know that it's going to be read by lots of people. The review attention is the most frightening and intimidating part of it, I think, for me personally. Do you read it? I do, because I'm always told, you know, your publicist will say there's a review in X and they will say it's good or it's bad. And if it's bad, 
I can't not read it. I can't like sit there wondering how, yeah, how awful. Yeah. You know, I, I think your imagination would go to places that are probably far worse than what anyone could actually say about you. Well, there's a test. To some degree, they're useful. Reviews are mostly written for readers. They're not written for the author. Sometimes they're written for the reviewer, though, or the industry. Oh, or, yeah, absolutely. You know. What do you think about the kind of the betrayal of women in media and films? Older women particularly, I suppose, I mean. You know, this has been well talked about. You go from being young and desirable to being very, very old. Yeah. There hasn't traditionally been a space in between, but I do think that has changed a lot. It's improving, isn't it? It uh, is improving, even in more commercial things. Very obvious one popping into our heads because we've all been watching it recently is Mayor of Easttown with Kate yeah, Winslet. Which is very recent. To me, it was extremely reminiscent of Happy Valley and Sarah Lancaster's yeah. role there, where she's, again, a middle-aged woman doing a job. But the actual character yeah. of a middle-aged woman, child has died, looking after her grandchild, but a young grandmother. I think that's sometimes film producers or publishing companies or whatever just have to have it shown to them yes there is a market for this if goodness sakes middle-aged women watch telly when we were selling the shift my agent was told by a couple of publishers there's no market for the shift it's crazy and now now there's like a whole menopause industry yeah you literally can't must be like saying this for a while that's fine (laughs) it is clear there are markets for stories about older women there is definitely a strong market for that so Come on. And there are a bunch of actors out there, actors who are desperate to do these parts. There are- I mean, hopefully we can have more than one or two as well. Yeah, in the past, exactly. it's always been, well, no, because we've got Judy Dench and Maggie Smith. Yeah. So we, just, we don't need any more. Yeah. And Olivia Colman can cover everything else. <laughs> yeah, but she, you know, she's only got so many hours in the day. I love Nicole Kidman. I think she's a brilliant actress. Oh, wow, yeah. And she can do as many parts as she likes, as far as I'm concerned. But there was that really salutary moment when you had her stood with Hugh Grant. And you're thinking, hmm, not even 10 years between these two and way more wrinkled on Hugh. Yeah. It's everybody's own choice Hmm. to tweak or not to tweak. Yeah. Are you a tweaker? I haven't tweaked. It's not really for me. I lived in Africa for 17 years. I was in the sun a lot and I'm pale. So I think I'm going to be quite wrinkly. But you know what? I'm not sure I can be bothered to do anything about it. (laughs) Also a little bit scared of the whole Botox thing, which I know is probably completely unfounded, but Mm. also too lazy. Yeah, basically too lazy. And don't care enough. You know, I only care when I see photographs of myself. I'm like, God in heaven. Or, you know, the the Zoom has been. Oh, no, it's like, no, I don't look like that, do I? And no amount of makeup and sort of Yeah. But it's one of the reasons to go back to the point is that I really love Scandinavian stuff is because you often... Yeah. The older actresses and actors look look like real people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think British drama people do look a bit more real. It's only when you watch American drama, like God, everyone is amazing. And then yeah. there was all this talk about. In fact, all this talk about Kate Winslet, who looked amazing anyway. But she did look more normal. Yeah, she looked slightly more normal than usual. More rough, <laughs> a bit more rough, a yeah. bit less felt. All of that and polished, I suppose. They let her roots show. <laughs> it's almost like the Scandinavian influence has finally reached outside the Atlantic and they've stopped glossing up. Yeah. I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask. Oh, yes. So what's your emotional age? I think it varies depending on what day I'm on. And actually, who I'm with. You know, if I'm with, like, my best friend Nikki from home, we're still probably 12. And if I'm with my university friend Ben, then we're probably 21. Totally by myself. I think I probably am in my 40s, boringly. I think that's where I am. I think my 30s were quite chaotic, so I think I'm happier being in my 40s. I think I've heard loads of women say that their 50s are brilliant, so at least, you know, that's something. Yay, I can look forward to it. 
<laughs> can you give us a book recommendation? Can be a book you've read recently that you loved or something that you've always loved that's been really significant to you? The book I've been sort of pressing into everybody's hands the past year or so is The Weekend by Charlotte Woods. It's this amazing novel about three women in later life who are still dynamic and career-oriented and, you know, have love affairs and have friendships and have lots they want to do with their lives. I was like, yes, thank God. Charlotte Wood is brilliant. Everyone should read The Weekend. It's so good. I absolutely loved it. And those characters, when they're all in their late 70s. I think, yeah, heading towards 80. So yeah, yeah. they're no spring chickens and they're brilliant characters. But I mean, I could recommend books all day long. So that's just one. What one piece of advice would you give younger women? Well, I think you can never underestimate the importance of financial independence. And I don't mean being rich, making lots of money, having lots of things. But I do think it's so important. Well, it's so liberating and gives you so much power if you know that you can pack a bag and walk away at any time. And that doesn't mean you can pack a bag and go and stay at the Ritz, just that you can take care of yourself. Try and make sure that you're never dependent, you know, that you can you can leave if you need to. It is the difference between being able to make your own decisions and not being able to make your own yeah. decisions, isn't it? And not, I'm not saying this is women's fault, no. but women are still so bad at talking about it, asking for it. Mm. I mean, I'm appalling at it. Mm. Appalling. I just think it's probably not prioritised at the point in your life at which it should be. Financial independence is important and can be a lifesaver. And I know it's not possible for everybody always, but I think it should be an aim. Totally. Who's your old bird role model? Now, I feel a bit cheeky saying this because she's not that much older than me. I think she's in her early 60s, but I'm going to say Deborah Levy at the moment. Just It's partly because I've just finished reading Real Estate. I've been reading her trilogy. But she's one of those people, one of those older women we were talking about, who's so engaged with the world. So I would also say people like Joan Didion, people who work still. Nora Ephron, I know, is no longer with us. People who, who are still engaged and open and learning new things and who are meeting new people that's what I would like to be when I get older hopefully cool I was gonna say we can't afford to retire anyway you can (laughs) but most of us can't um what's your superpower the thing I love doing is actually recommending books to people I love it when people ask me what to read I I write like long emails people who've said oh what should I read and I'll give them a list of 20 but yeah that's the thing I like doing I might ask you to do that just in case there's any I haven't read I bet you've read them all I think we've probably got quite some to say I think so yeah yeah. I love that one book recommendation yeah you often ask questions like what's the thing you can do that nobody else knows about (laughs) I don't have anything yeah I'm not one of those people who can I can play the flute really well whatever (laughs) um how many fucks do you give Oh, I still, unfortunately, do give quite a lot of fucks. Yeah, no, I still care about what people think, you know, about me, about what I write. I still care very much about the world. I spend a lot of the time being very, very angry at the state of the world. So unfortunately, yeah, I give a lot of fucks. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Thank you, Paula. Thank you. And it wasn't too painful, was it? No, it was actually fun. I wish all my interviews were like that. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 